Welcome to the Painting Podcast, Episode 6, Hoppers, Homes. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the life and paintings of Edward Hopper, the American icon known for painting lonely people in lonely rooms, something that I'm sure resonates with a lot of you out there right now since we are recording this at the peak of coronavirus times in the United States. We can all think about Edward Hopper's very solitary individuals in these urban spaces generally. So let's get right into it. In this first section of the podcast, which I like to call Somewhere at Some Time, and I think it's important to look at just the general dates that somebody is born so we can get some context for what was going on in the world at that time. We're all born somewhere at some time, somewhere in the world, in this giant world, and where we're born immediately tells a lot about us, even this age of globalization where everything's getting mushed together. Where we're born and when we're born always tells a lot about us. So... Edward Hopper was born in 1882 in Nyack, New York, which was a yacht building center on the Hudson River north of New York City. Now, that tells us a few things very quickly about Edward Hopper. Um, Of course, the first thing that pops into my mind is the Hudson River School, which is one of the most important landscape painting schools in uh, American history. And the, the Hudson River School was a, was a group of artists that were primarily focused on showing the expansive beauty of the American landscape. And they were actually influenced by the Dusseldorf School of Painting, um, which would have come about 20 years previous to that in the 1820s. So the Hudson River School is developed around the 1850s, and Edward Hopper is born on a, a town where the Hudson River flowed through it. So every, every city usually has a river of some sort, and Edward Hopper's river being... The Hudson River is certainly very telling about his his future immediately. The other thing is, of course, he's living close to New York City. So there's the idea, I imagine, as he's growing up, that art is going on there. There's something very important going on in New York City, um, being you know one of the, the major cities for art and music in the world. So he, he got to be born in a, in a very lucky place that would help shape his view of the world. His um, early life is known for a very strict upbringing. His parents were both pretty devout Baptists. And um, from what we know, his father was, was pretty uh, mild-mannered, I guess you could say. Probably not a guy who talked a lot. Um, and his house was full of women, uh, dominated by women, uh, some would say, his grandmother, his sister, and they also had a maid. So that gives you an idea. He was, he was from a pretty good family. You know, they were upper middle class people living in a really nice home in, in Nyack, New York. And Nyack is still, 
you know, they, it's still a town. It's around 7,000 people that live there now. And you can actually go to Edward Hopper's home there. I've never done it, but you can go to the childhood home of Edward Hopper and it's been made into a museum. So if you're around that area, that could be a really interesting pilgrimage to make, certainly. And Edward Hopper started drawing and painting from a very, very early age. They still have some of his drawings from when he's five years old, and his parents were known to encourage this habit. And by the time he was 10 years old, he was already dating his paintings. So in my mind, you know, I don't think of many children creating a drawing and then putting a date on it. So the idea that Edward Hopper is writing down the date of when a painting is made when he's 10 years old would indicate to me that at this point he's also probably looking at painters and paintings and seeing people putting dates on paintings in the bottom right corner and signing them in a very certain way. So I imagine by the time he's 10 years old, he's already really looking up to these people. Uh, there's also some self-portraits that he did that you can check out as well. And in these self-portraits, you can see that he kind of depicts himself as lanky and awkward. He's not exactly drawing and painting himself as some sort of uh, comic book hero or anything like that. He looks kind of like a bookish, nerdy kid in, um, in his early drawings and paintings. So Edward Hopper would go on, by the time he's only 17 or 18 years old, he would actually start doing a correspondence class and that would be a class where you would, you know, be given an assignment that you'd get in the mail, and then you would complete that assignment and probably send an actual physical copy of your drawing or painting uh, back to your teacher. And it's kind of interesting to think about these correspondence classes now that everything is going digital. Um, these things actually have existed for quite some time, and Edward Hopper would actually start his artistic career by looking at assignments that people were sending him in the mail. So that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Later on, he would go on to study at the Parsons School, what would become Parsons. Um, back then, it was called the New York School of Art and Design. And Parsons is kind of an interesting institution being that it's one of the first programs, I think it is the first program in the United States that isn't focused solely on art. They have this commercial edge to them. And Hopper's parents also were pushing for him to have uh, a backup plan, as they would say now. So his backup plan was to become a commercial artist. Of course, he wanted to become a painter, but his parents were like, um, if you're going to school, you're going to have to go to a school that also teaches you some something that can bring you money very quickly, or not quickly, but can at least make you some money and sustain you for the rest of your life. So he goes to Parsons, and this was a, a brand new school at that time. It was founded in 1896, and Hopper would be going there at 1899. Uh, the school was founded by William Merritt Chase, who is an absolute legend, an American painter uh, known primarily for impressionistic painters, but also as a school. And, uh, and of course, starting uh, Parsons as well. 
So he was focused on really individualistic artistic expression. So a lot of times painting and drawing schools, they had this atelier model, which would have been famous in France and in the United States as well. It still is famous now. You can still go to an atelier if you want to. But these schools are primarily focused on a very specific mode of creating art. And there's rules for how you draw the figure, and there's rules for how you compose painting. And a lot of these rules, I think, can be quite freeing in a way if you actually give in to them. It's kind of like a haiku poem. When you have a certain structure, things can actually be kind of liberating in a sense. But in the 1890s, this wasn't exactly the case. And there was this desire with the rise of Impressionism for artists to really show their view of the world from inside their head. And they weren't just cameras. Like the Hudson River School uh, 100 years previous was very detail-oriented, and they were very obsessed with getting everything right in a landscape. And in the 1890s, painters are given a lot more freedom to interpret the paint and play with the paint in different ways that previously would not be available to them. And the head of this new way of thinking and new way of painting was a school called the Ashcan School. And Robert Henry was one of the founders of this school. Another person you might want to look at in connection with the Ashcan School is John Sloan. And you'll notice that in a lot of Sloan's paintings as well, these are coming from, you know, later on. This is 1910, 1912 that John Sloan is making these paintings you'll start to see these simplified figures on rooftops. Just Google out John Sloan rooftops, and you'll get some of these images. Now, in John Sloan's paintings, we are generally seeing multiple figures together, um, people at parties, these sorts of events. His rooftops are nice because I think they connect to Hopper's work. In their quietness, they have a really subdued color palette. Um, however, there is still three people, but they're not necessarily interacting with each other. They're all kind of in their own world. And that's something we're going to see a lot with Edward Hopper. His paintings often depict people that seem to be trapped within their own minds. And this is something, you know, very characteristic of his work. However, if we start looking at Edward Hopper, and thinking about what else was happening during this same time in literature, in music. And in literature, we can often think of a school called American Realism. And this, this school of literature or movement in literature, we can begin thinking about ordinary people doing ordinary things. So a lot of times this might not necessarily be people in a city so uh, someone like Mark Twain is often thought of as an American realist author. And we can all think about Huck Finn and Jim and their adventures together. Two people who are very ordinary. They're not aristocrats. This isn't a story about royalty or anything like that. This is a story about ordinary people. And that would be, you know, that's even before... Hopper would be coming out. Of course, we had the similar things happening in Europe as well. Van Gogh being a prime example. 
Van Gogh's Potato Eater's Painting, where he just shows this very poor family around a kitchen table eating potatoes. So this idea of ordinary people doing ordinary things, and this is something that we can paint. This is something that we can put on the wall and think about and acknowledge as existing. So a lot of times we think of painting existing in the realm of the Sistine Chapel, where it's the highest imaginable subject matter you could possibly paint. God, creation of the planet. And then we come down to a poor family eating potatoes around a kitchen table. And if you want to look at films as well about New York City, I was thinking, and Gangs of New York takes place in the 1860s. So we're already getting that very guttural, working class feel to a lot of work many years before Hopper is even born. But if we go further, there's a great film called Once Upon a Time in America, and it stars Robert De Niro going back in time and recalling his younger days when he was in a gang in New York City in the 1920s. This is really the world of Edward Hopper. So Edward Hopper, after he finishes school, he, he gets into that job that his parents wanted him to get, and he becomes an illustrator. And this really ties him down for about 15 years. He's really tied to this job. He's not really enjoying creating these illustrations. A lot of the illustrations that he'd be creating would be for a variety of magazines. And you can actually hunt these down on the internet. One of them is called Hotel Management Magazine. And Hopper did a bunch of covers for this. And on these covers, you'll often see kind of upper class people enjoying life, dancing together, or golfing, or sailing. A lot of these types of activities. But we can often think of artists going through a period where there is a lot of creation. And a lot of times it happens in their 20s and 30s, where they create just an unbelievable amount of work. Often it's done very repetitively. I can imagine uh, illustrators were a different thing back then, because drawing itself had a, a commercial application for media, whereas now it's all digitally manipulated and using photos uh, to make these sort of things. A good example would be, think about 1980s and 1970s films and how great those covers of those VHS tapes are, those old paintings that they would do for movies. But there was actually that guy, and he would have to make a lot of work, you know? So, like, you look at somebody like Enzo Sciotti, who's an Italian artist who did a lot of these illustrations for, for movie posters and this sort of things. He's doing th literally thousands of these covers. So these are thousands of paintings. So the method of working is a bit different. Now we get to kind of think of painting as this thing where we get to sit down and kind of take our time 
No. Back then, you were given deadlines, you know, often that day. You'd have to create a work that day immediately. And you've just got your table, a bottle of ink, some brushes, and some watercolors. That's pretty much it. Probably had some rulers and stuff like that as well. But mainly, you're just drawing. That's all it is. So Hopper created hundreds and hundreds, thousands of illustrations for a variety of magazines. And people have pieced together this type of work. I can get a, a link up on the blog post that's connected with this episode. And you can go check that out and look at some of these old illustrations. This concept is also thought of as the whole idea of 10,000 hours. So Malcolm Gladwell is a writer who came up with this concept, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago, that artists and musicians and writers, everybody who was really good at something spent around 10,000 hours perfecting their craft before they became masters of it, so to speak. And I think we could think of often, you know, we wouldn't care about Hopper's illustrative career. Everybody cares about his paintings, of course. But they probably are a big component of this drawing process that he'd create, compositional choices that he's making, even in these layouts for magazine covers and stuff like that and just the speed with which he's working. And again, I said he's working primarily with ink, pencil, and watercolor. That's pretty much it. So the transition to oil paint, which is so much more forgiving, it's probably a lot easier for him as well in some respects because watercolor is not forgiving at all. And you've got these big black lines. Once they're down there, they're down with a you know, brush and ink. So he really perfected his craft while creating a lot of these illustrations. And he would make two trips to Paris. So we think about what's happening in Paris. Everything is happening in Paris, <laughs> basically, at this time. So you can imagine cubism is exploding all these different types of ways of seeing the world is changing. And this is happening in New York City as well, of course. And Hopper still wants to go to Paris, but he's not really part of this avant-garde Paris artist. He doesn't really fit in with all those people. He's still a bit of an outsider, so to speak. Perhaps he even feels weighed down by the amount of commercial work that he's doing. We think of it now as somebody who creates maybe a lot of concept art for a film, which also takes an incredible amount of work creating 3D models, and that's all essentially drawing as well. But somebody who creates tons and tons of work for somebody else, but doesn't have the opportunity to create their own work. And this lasted for longer than a, a decade for Hopper. Another interesting comparison in this respect around the same time would be Edward Mucha, the Czech artist, primarily known for his illustrations. Everybody loves his illustrations and people get him tattooed on him. If you look up Mucha, M-U-C-H-A is how you spell his last name. But 
he also had a similar story of somebody who was really tied to illustration and he just wanted to make paintings. That's all he really wanted to do. But Mucha was also tied up in all these illustration jobs. And then later on in the 1920s or so, he got enough money from making all the, becoming super famous, making illustrations and posters and these sort of things. And then he's like, I get to finally start to paint. And he created the Slav Epic, which is this huge um, group of giant oil paintings depicting the entire history of the Slav, Slavic people. And nobody cared about it when it was created. And you can now go visit it uh, on display in Prague but when it was made, like nobody really cared about it. There was other stuff happening in Europe. There was other stuff happening in Prague at the time that was much more revolutionary and cutting edge than historical oil paintings <laughs> depicting the history of the people. People were interested in different things then. So I imagine Hopper is in kind of a, he's, he's in a bit of a strange position going to Paris. I'm not sure what he wants to find in Paris, but he, he comes back to the United States after both of these trips, and he just keeps on creating these illustrations, doing some watercolors in his own spare time. And by, you know, around 1910, he is beginning to experiment with oil painting, and his palette is particularly dark. And that's something we're going to notice a lot with Hopper throughout the, the rest of his career is that oftentimes he has a very dark palette and the values which are used in the creation of the paintings are often in a similar range. There's not an extreme amount of contrast from light to dark in these paintings. And one artist I like to look at in comparison to Hopper in this respect is Gwen John. And she's a, a Welsh painter who spent most of her life working in France. And she did primarily female sitters as well, so she has a lot of portrait paintings of women in interior spaces. But if you look at her value choices and her range of colors are also kind of in a similar realm to Edward Hopper's. And she lived at the, the same time as him as well. So she's an interesting one to look at. As far as Hopper is concerned, he would go to Massachusetts around 1912, 1913, and he would start doing watercolors of lighthouses and these sort of things. And he'd end up selling his first painting around 1913 of a sailboat scene. Now, if we look back in time, 1906 was the first time he went to Paris, and we get to see this really dark palette that he's painting. We can first look at a painting called Stairway at 48th Street in Paris, and this stairway is just absolutely gorgeous. Go and look at it. Basically, it's just a very dark color palette of these stairs going down the steps and just imagine Edward Hopper a young Edward Hopper on a stairway painting in Paris it, it doesn't get much better than that but he's also got another painting from a little bit later 1912 called American Village 
that he would do in the U.S. And it's taken from a, a high point in a building from a, a top floor looking down into a street with all these dark brownish red brick colored buildings and the vegetation and trees surrounding everything is very muted and almost more gray than green. And we can see this color palette developing in these earlier works. He would be influenced by Impressionism for a, for a short period of time, where his palette would get a little bit brighter. But he would later state that this early work that he did in Paris in 1906, this stairway painting, the colors that he used, the tones, the value range that was employed here, would become the heart of his work later on after coming through the Impressionist phase. So Hopper would do well through the 1910s. He'd actually even create some posters for the war effort that he'd win prizes for. He's gaining a little bit of, of traction with his paintings, and some are being purchased, and he's getting awards for them as well. And then in 1923, he would uh, meet Josephine Nivison, who was another student of Robert Henry, when he was on a summer painting trip in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And the two were really quite different, uh, physically as well in, as their beliefs. She was rather short and very sociable and quite energetic and going out like a real go-getter, I guess you could say, for her time. And Hopper was known as being very shy, very quiet, very introspective. And one quote she would say to describe Edward would be, quote, Sometimes talking to Eddie is just like dropping a stone in a well, except that it doesn't thump when it hits the bottom. So you can imagine that their relationship was one which uh, had its own unique character to it, them both being quite opposite. But one good thing about her socialness and her drive and her ability to talk with other people and go to parties was that Hopper began to become really famous because she was promoting his work. And all of a sudden, six of Hopper's watercolors that he did in Gloucester were admitted to an ex exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum in 1923. It's the same year that he meets her. And then he gets another painting bought for, by a museum. And more museums are lining up for his work. All of a sudden, Hopper's illustration career is beginning to disintegrate, and his painting career is beginning to skyrocket. And remember, this is during the Depression as well. So this is right leading up to the Great Depression. So times are booming, but they're about to drop off. So. Throughout the Great Depression, Hopper would maintain his status, and he actually gets pieces by 1931. 
He's selling pieces to the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they paid him thousands of dollars, probably the equivalent of, I don't know, maybe $100,000 total. And then he also sold 30 paintings this year as well, in 1931. And so... He's doing quite well. He, he buys a car, which is a, an amazing thing to have back then, I can imagine. And he uses his car to drive up the East Coast and go on different painting trips in Cape Cod, places like this. He'd end up buying a cabin there, which he would vacation at in the summers. So he would be spending, you know, eight, nine months of the year in New York City and then three months of the year vacationing at his summer house with his wife, Josephine, because, of course, he married Josephine. Who couldn't marry Josephine? We can't think of her as being this kind of mythical figure. She's the one in his paintings, too. So she's the model when you see all these paintings of women by themselves in various situations. That's Josephine. So... He marries her, and he's completely airborne with his career. I imagine his work ethic, which was developed as a result of creating all these illustrations over the years, goes straight into art making and paintings and etchings that he would create. And he'd make a lot of these works over the years, just constantly, constantly producing and focusing primarily on his wife as his subject and his model. Even this is kind of a break from a lot of how we look at women nudes. Oftentimes, we would see uh, somebody like Delacroix would make a painting of a woman, and she's obviously sexualized in some sort of a posture, which is kind of unrealistic with her hand dangling off the side of a bed and, you know, some cloth sensually draped on her body. But with Hopper, even we can look at his early etching. He does an etching called Midnight Wind of a, a woman and the wind is blowing in the window and she's rising out of bed nude. It's not a sexual painting. I don't think his view of women was in that manner. And when you look at his paintings that he's creating of Josephine in various situations, in interiors, in these types of spaces, you can see that they're more psychologically exposed rather than just physically exposed. They're all caught in contemplative moments where they're pondering some idea or thinking or just being alone. So in this respect, there's, there's this realism that's portrayed in these paintings. There's not a lot of romanticism with Hopper. And he wouldn't really make a lot of statements about his art either. He wasn't somebody who was writing a lot. He would do some interviews that Josephine would, would set up for him. But he wasn't somebody who was necessarily writing a ton about his work or intellectualizing it. And one of the only known handwritten artist statements that he had was just titled Statement, and he submitted this in 1953 to the journal 
called Reality. And this gives us an idea of his philosophy and how he thought about creating art. It was made on a handwritten note. He didn't even type it up. So here it is. Great art is the outward expression of an inner life in the artist. And this inner life will result in his personal vision of the world. No amount of skillful intervention can replace the essential element of imagination. One of the weaknesses of much abstract painting is the attempt to substitute the inventions of the human intellect for a private imaginative conception. The inner life of a human being is a vast and varied realm and does not concern itself alone with stimulating arrangements of color, form, and design. The term life used in art is something not to be held in contempt, for it implies all of existence and the province of art is to react to it and not to shun it. Painting will have to deal more fully and less obliquely with life and nature's phenomena before it can again become great. So what basically I take from this is that a lot of artists can become technicians who are, are great at what they do. But if there isn't that personal vision, we don't really have the a feel for who the artist is. So there's a lot of people who can just paint a woman nude on a couch. People have been painting that for hundreds of years now. But how can you actually create that subject and tell more about the artist who's painting it and less about just being a camera or a printer for the real world? And that's where Hopper really stands out. And we know from people around him that he was very reclusive, that he was a man of very few words, and that he led a very introspective life. And we look at these paintings, even these paintings he made of couples in um, the 1930s. He would have a man and a woman in a room together, and the man would be reading the paper, not paying attention to the woman necessarily. Both of them in their own universes completely. And from what we know about Hopper personally, this is kind of how he was. So liking Hopper is also kind of liking that person who's thinking and introspective, not necessarily loud and ostentatious. So these are the characters in a lot of his paintings. And when we say characters, we can often think of them as being cinematic in a lot of ways. These paintings are being made at the same time that movies are becoming more and more popular and more and more mainstream as well. Some of his paintings would even be inspiration for filmmakers 20 years later, Alfred Hitchcock being one who cited um, Hopper's House by the Side of the Road as an inspiration for the house in Psycho. So you can see similar elements, even how we use composition in painting, how that house looks. 20 years later, it can show up in pop culture and be on the big screen. Similar composition, similar looking house, imposing, kind of scary. 
And when I say pop culture, there is obviously a big pop culture element to Edward Hopper, with his most famous painting being Nighthawks at the Diner. And we can find this all over the world. There's actually a really famous reproduction of it with James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, I think, are both at the diner. And people have remade this painting multiple times in movies and films, TV shows. It's at the Art Institute of Chicago where I went to school, and I'd walk by it all the time. It's always amazing to see these reproductions everywhere. And there the painting is, just being a painting on the wall. It's not necessarily huge or anything. But we get that same feel. I mean, it's a very hopper painting. It's almost impossible to critically dissect it because it is so famous. But it's also not a mistake that we associate that painting with a certain 1950s sort of style. It looks like film noir, really. And a lot of Hopper, to me, has this connection to film noir and these types of detective films. You know, the, they're dark, they're late at night, there's this solitary figure up against the world sort of mentality in a lot of these films. So it's not a mistake that we put Marilyn and James Dean into Nighthawks, even though it was painted a decade before either of them were creating films. But we associate his, his paintings and his style a lot with these types of subjects and themes. It's always impossible to really figure out how important just one artist is in creating an entire genre, such as film noir. But we'll see Edward Hopper continue to pop up for, for many years to come. He would continue painting in the 1930s and in the 1940s, making loads of work. And then on May 15th, 1967, Hopper would die uh, in New York City in his studio. He suffered some health complications the last couple decades of his life, but he did continue painting as long as he could. His work would continue to be remembered in various films. As I stated before, Hitchcock would be really influenced by him. But also another fun one to watch if you're looking for a, a period piece about New York City and that the director, Sam Mendez, actually said was influenced by Edward Hopper in set design. You can check out a film called Road to Perdition. And a lot of these compositions in that film will be reminiscent of Hopper's work. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Painting Podcast. As always, make a comment down below and let me know who else should I do? Who else should I do? This was a suggestion from White Ferrari who was asking for a painting-like video. I'll get around to making that painting-like video. But I needed to really delve into Edward Hopper first to get a feel for how I can paint like him. But that's coming up as well. Wanted to let you know I'm also doing consultations 
painting consultations for $75. And with that, you'll get a list of artists I recommend that you look at. I'll give you feedback on your work and tips for improvement as well. And you'll have a 30-minute critique session with me where I can discuss your work further and your goals and this sort of stuff. So if you're interested in that, head over to paintingcourse.com. That's painting-course.com. And you'll find all the information you need to get set up with that. And you can also take the free course at paintingcourse.com. There's nothing to sign up for. It's completely free, open, step-by-step. Over the last 10 years, I've created two separate painting courses there. One is the big, massive course of about 32 lessons, all of which are online. And the second is a beginning course for people that are just starting out. So head over to painting-course.com and get started painting today. Till next time, I'm Jeremiah Polachek, and I hope that all of you will visualize your reality through painting.